Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. This morning and over the next few weeks about the return of Jesus. Wow. Said to um, Chris this morning, I feel quite a trepidation because um, when we talk about things like this, because of what we're handling, because of the truths involved, because of the, um, the passions that this arouses for many people in in ways that we may not necessarily see uh, from the scriptures. We want to talk about some of that. So today, uh, a bit of an introduction, uh, and over the weeks to come, um, more detail will be unfolded. But I'd like to begin, if I may, in Acts chapter 1. And as you turn to Acts 1 to pray, Lord, as we come before you, who is in heaven but is coming back. Help us to grasp what we're dealing with this morning. Help us to understand um, some of what this involves. Help us to handle the scriptures accurately today. Help us to feel a great sense of impetus because of your return, Lord. Amen. 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 I want to read from Acts chapter 1. And um, uh, we'll take the first 11 verses. So this is um, Luke, who, who writes his history in two parts. Part one is Luke's gospel. Part two is the book of Acts. And so that's why he begins this way. He says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up after he'd given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was gathered with them, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, at this time, are you you restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while he was 
going, they were gazing into heaven. And suddenly, two men in white clothes stood by them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. Other other versions of that last verse that you might have as you were reading just now, in in the New International, it says, this same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back. I think that's the verse uh, on the screen in a moment. Uh, the, the New Living Translation says, Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So in this, in this little mini-series, which for us is, is, is coming, is drawing our whole bigger series of the cross and the crown, it is coming towards the end of that now. We're going to... Uh, be talking about this aspect of the crowning of Jesus. And let me just give you two reasons why we want to look at this topic right now. I, I think I said last week, it's, it's something we've not really taught on for well over 10 years in terms of um, any, um, any sort of focused teaching on this topic. So two reasons. Number one, this is one of those boundary stones Do you remember we talked about boundary stones um, a couple of years ago? And over the last couple of years, we didn't do it quite as we planned. Nothing new there. But we we have talked about marriage and sexuality. And we've talked about authority. We've talked about different aspects of those things. And, And this was one of the other topics we always wanted to cover. The return of Jesus. The restoration of all things. The the destiny of Israel. And, and, and we're calling these boundary stones. There's a verse in Proverbs that warns us not to move ancient boundary stones. And some of these topics, which have been um, embraced by our ancestors, um, un, uncontested in terms of truth and orthodoxy, have in, certainly in recent times, although there's, there's nothing new under the sun, but we've seen these things shifting being redefined. And so as one of those things, we wish to set forth Bible truth with clarity, with courage, uh, believing that that the church that's built on the Word of God is the most secure and liberating place to be. We do ourselves no favors by shifting things. The second reason for tackling this topic right now is that the return of Christ is the ultimate unfulfilled prophecy. The ultimate unfulfilled prophecy. But it will certainly happen. Maybe in our lifetimes. And it will be the consummation, it will be the climax of all things. I'll qualify that in just a moment. And because of the certainty of this event, and because of what will happen when it happens, the return of Christ should be the greatest incentive and imperative we have for our mission. We have an urgent mission here and now, not in spite of the return of Christ, but because of the return of Christ. Are you with me? Excellent. Would you turn now to Ephesians 1? 
I, I, it's important um, I build it's a sort of longer intro than normal because this is introducing um, several sessions that we'll have on different aspects of this. But if, in Ephesians 1, verse 20, he, um, that is the Father, God the Father, he, he demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, every power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put everything under his feet, and he appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. I'm actually itching just to stop and preach on that, but we, but we must just... Um, I wanted to read that for this reason. The Bible describes all of time and history, be it of humanity or of the cosmos, the Bible describes all of time and history as divided into two ages, the present age and the age to come. And if you just put the, the verse up, uh, Katie, in that text we read this, that he's been lifted far above every ruler and authority, every power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There are many places I could have we could look for, for some descriptions of this. But, but that's how the Bible describes all of time, all of history, um, all, all of our experience as being either concerning the present age or the age to come. And what divides those two ages, what stands in the middle of those two ages is the return of Jesus. The return of Jesus is the event that will demark, that will bring an end to the present age and will announce and herald and usher in the age to come. The present age, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some more phrases and words we use in a moment, but the present age, the, the present age is the whole of the age before Christ returns. It is the age from creation to his return. It is the age we live in. Um, without making too much of this, you might say that within that age, there are three eras or phases. There's, there's the first part of that phase in which, in a sense, God was on the outside, the Old Testament times. God wasn't either alongside or, or, or living within people. God was external to people. That was the first part of the present age. There was then 30-something years in which God was not outside, God was alongside, described for us in the Gospels. Jesus walked on earth. And then the last 2,000 years of the present age have been the, the, the era or the phase in which God has been on the inside, described the beginning of that period described in, in the book of Acts, described in the epistles. 
I love the fact that Jesus, at the end of phase two, the gospel era, Jesus could ascend into heaven, could baptize the disciples in the Holy Spirit, and would know that they had all they needed to continue and to continue in his mission until the end of the present age. That was his confidence. We'll come back to that in just a moment. The age to come, the age after the return of the Christ, the whole age after the return of Christ, is an age which, although we haven't entered it yet, we are already tasting some of the powers of that age. That's what Hebrews 6 verse 5 says. We're tasting the powers of the age to come. That's a wonderful thought, isn't it? There's something of of what's coming that we are we're beginning to inherit now. We haven't yet come into that age because Christ hasn't returned to inaugurate that age, but we are tasting the powers of the age to come. We have the Spirit guaranteeing what is to come. We have that. The world doesn't have that. Folks, we are so blessed. And the return of Jesus... Uh, Often in the Bible, the return of Jesus is called the day of the Lord. Acts 2.20, there's many places you could look at that, but Acts 2.20 talks about the the great and remarkable day of the Lord. It's a reference to the return of Jesus, the day he returns. The day of the Lord will signal in decisive, um, black and white terms, will signal the end of the present age and the beginning of of the age to come. Those verses we read in Acts 1.11, just, just turn back and just have a look at those because there are so, the reason I started there on, on this topic of the return of Christ is because so many of the themes that are in there become important to us. This passage links his resurrection with his return. This passage talks about, um, or, or the inferences, the things to do with the present age and the age to come. This passage makes mention of the fact that God has set certain times and seasons by his own authority. This passage makes reference to the the era of Jesus and the era of the Spirit. This passage talks about restoration and talks about the kingdom. This passage makes a reference to natural ethnic Israel and, and the inference of spiritual and eternal Israel. This passage, friends, links the cross and the crown and the mission. This passage deals with um, Jerusalem and the ends of the earth. There's a lot in here. Let me just also, by way of extended introduction, just just, um, mention some of the words that we might come across, some of the terminology, so that... um, the great thing about the return of Christ is it's not meant to be mysterious. You know, you know the revelation means apocalypse. It means an unveiling. The revelation should make things clearer. That's the whole point. Revelation shouldn't confuse us, shouldn't, shouldn't make things hidden. Revelation is an, is an unveiling, a, a revealing. So some of these words, last days. 
Um, I would describe the last days as the, as the whole time between the resurrection and, and the return of Christ, the whole of that last phase, the, the, the era of the church, the era of the spirit. These are the days, Hebrews 1, chapter 2 says, in these last days, God has spoken to us through the Son. And Acts 2, 7 says that in the last days, God will pour out his spirit. These last days are most certainly the days we're living in. They're, they're the whole days of the of the church time, of the time of the Spirit. But other, other um, references um, in 2 Timothy and 2 Peter talk about the last days also being times of sin, being times of lust, being times of scoffing, being times of ridicule as to whether Christ will actually return. And then you get this phrase, end times. That's not strictly a biblical phrase. There is a phrase in the Bible, the ends of the ages, which is pretty much the same thing. But, but I guess the end times, although it's used in different ways, essentially describes the end of the last days. And we'll talk about whether we're in those or not a little bit later. And then, of course, there's, there's mention in, in Acts to the kingdom. What do we mean by the kingdom of God? And I'll refer to that a few times. The kingdom of God is the reign of God. The kingdom of God is his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is already fully expressed in heaven where God rules and reigns unchallenged and the kingdom of God is being increasingly expressed on earth as the church fulfills its mission. And then there's that word restore or or, or the, the bigger word restoration. What do we mean by that? Well, the Bible always means returning something back to its original condition so that it can be used for its original intention. It's, it's a complete restoration, but it always involves something better than it ever was. There's not just a return. There's not just a, there's not just a payback. There's a compensation as well. So when we talk about things being restored, it's always right back to what God originally intended for them. And the last word on the screen behind me, can we all say together? Eschatology. Again, it's not, a, it's not a word you'll find in the Bible, but, but the Greek word it comes from, eschatos, simply means the last things. Eschatology is, is the part of theology that concerns the last things. However, I do want to say this. For us, the return of Jesus is not the last thing. It's not the end. It's the central thing. And um, I'm conscious, by the way, we also said the cross was the central thing. It just depends what topic we're on. (laughs) They're both central things. The return of Christ in terms of time, which is the point I'm making, in terms of eras, even use the word time loosely, but the, the return of Christ is the central thing because that is the thing that separates the present age from the age to come. On the screen next, you'll see some key passages that deal with um, the end times, with the return of Christ. Um, Matthew 24, 25. Best place to start is, what did Jesus say? And we'll we'll be there extensively uh, in a moment. Also, there's some parallel passages there. Mark 13, Luke 17, 21. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul talks about uh, resurrection. In 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 
You'll find uh, a few chapters there that deal very much with the return of Christ, with what happens to believers who've died before he returns, and with somebody called the man of lawlessness, also often described as the Antichrist. In 2 Timothy and 2 Peter, there are some chapters that talk about the last days, uh, what those days will be like, the return of Christ. And then, of course, there's the book of Revelation, which is, which is the vision given to Jesus' closest friend, John, the beloved disciple, uh, which pictures the triumph of Christ, pictures the final judgment, pictures the new heavens, the new earth, pictures the bride being restored and united with Christ. As we approach these things, um, there are some principles which become really important. And just to mention a few of them, number one, we should always look at what is clear before being bothered about what's difficult. There are some clear and literal passages. Let's interpret them first before going on to the more figurative ones, the more... um, those that involve symbols and types and pictures. Um, Let's look first to what Jesus said, because he states things plainly. The second thing is we should avoid being dogmatic where the Bible is not dogmatic. There are some things that the Bible um, leaves room for, doesn't, doesn't deal with. There are some mysteries. There's a great verse in Deuteronomy where it says, the revealed things belong to men, but the, the secret things belong to God. There are aspects of this which just simply aren't revealed to us. We shouldn't be concerned about them. We should also understand that certain um, genres are used in some of the writings about the end times, especially in the Old Testament, in Daniel and Ezekiel, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation. The whole language is intended to be pictorial, to be dramatic, to to include um, figurative things. We shouldn't take some of those things literally as if, as if they are historic or, or um, literal descriptions. And finally and mostly, and then we'll get into um, some of the detail here, we must appreciate the overall purpose of all these writings. What do you think the purpose of the writings about the end times are? Absolutely. Who said that? Ashley, to encourage us, to make us hopeful, to reassure us. And any teaching on this which leads to confusion or further mystery or fear um, is really to be questioned. These scriptures are to encourage us and give us hope. All right? So with all that said, this is what we're going to look at um, for the next um, little while. Six questions... Who, how, where, why, when, and so what. And all I'm going to do is scatter some seed, put some things out there, pique your interest, uh, answer maybe some questions as to where we stand on some things, and we'll look at some fantastic scriptures along the way. So first of all, who is going to return? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Who will return? Well, we all know it's Jesus. That, you didn't think it, the answer would be as simple as that, did you? 
Have a look at Revelation 19. Just look at this description of him in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knows except himself. Secret things belong to God. He wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. And from his mouth came a sharp sword, so that with it he might strike the nations. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter, and he will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Who will return? That's the one who's returning. King Jesus, faithful and true, crowned with many crowns, with blood and and scars that can be seen. The word of God, the commander of heaven's armies, the one who will judge all things, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The, the, The word that's translated often for the return of Christ is this word parousia. You might have heard that, the parousia. And... um, It's a word that means that the presence or the arrival or the coming of somebody, and it's especially used to describe royalty. Royalty is coming. Who is coming back? The King of kings and the Lord of lords, and his return will be regal, as well as being literal as well as being physical. We'll come on to those things in just a moment. The king is returning. And the second question is, is how will he return? Turn with me to Matthew 24. Remember, this this is a key text for us. Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. Two chapters. If you've got a red letter Bible, it's all red. It's all red. This is This is Jesus. This is his own teaching about his own return. Pay attention. (laughs) Matthew 24. Um, We're going to return to here a few times over the next few minutes, but uh, just for now, we'll pick it up at verse 27. This is how he'll return. For as the lightning comes from the east... And flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is there, the vultures will gather. I won't be expanding that today. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the celestial powers will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the people's of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Turn also to 1 Thessalonians 4, one of the other passages I mentioned. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, and verse 14. 
as we're just dipping into these passages, you, you might, well, I hope you'll really have an urge to read all around the verses I'm reading, see, see the, the whole thing here. But 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14. Okay, everybody there? Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by a revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who've fallen asleep, died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, I mean, you try and picture it, don't you? (laughs) How will he come back? How will he return? What will it look like? What will it sound like? Utterly awesome. There will be visible manifestations. There will be signs. There will be shakings in the skies. He will descend from heaven with shouts. He will come on the clouds with with power and glory. The archangel will be heard. The trumpet of God will sound. Uh, In 2 Peter, it says the heavens will pass away and all the works on earth will be disclosed. Folks, it will be triumphant. And it will be crowded. He won't return alone. He'll come with an angelic entourage. The armies of heaven will follow him on white horses. And as he descends, the dead in Christ will rise to join him in his descent. It's an awesome picture. We can't possibly do justice to it. But he certainly won't come secretly. There's no such thing as a secret rapture. More about that in a moment. It will be very public, very visible. Do you remember in Acts 1, the angels say, in the same way you saw him go, you will see him come again. In fact, in, um, in Matthew 24, 27, where it talked about the lightning strike, lightning that, that is in the east and is seen in the west, the picture it's giving us that this will be seen everywhere. In Revelation 1 and verse 7, just have a quick turn there. Um, I'll mention this again in a moment, but in Revelation 1 verse 7, John is um, quoting from the Old Testament, but in verse 7, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. I can't I don't know how he'll do that. But that's what will happen. His first coming was not seen, not understood, not appreciated by everybody, not accepted by everybody. But his second coming, there'll be no mistake. He is coming again. Everybody okay? Um, Third question I wanted to put to us is, is when will he return? 
And, um, sorry, I beg your pardon, where, where he will return? Where, where will he return? Um, let me just say on this, some people think he will return to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. There's some verses in Zechariah that describe that. Uh, some would say that is the place from where he ascended. Uh, in my reading of things, it is not clear. Zechariah is full of rich imagery. And what is clear, in fact, if you look at those verses in Revelation that we just looked at, look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. And all the families on earth will mourn over him. In, in this translation, it says, this is certain. Amen. What is certain is that every eye will see him. In Luke 17, as he's describing that lightning flash, it says, as the lightning flashes from horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. Wherever, wherever he returns, however he returns, whatever it's like, somehow everybody will be aware. But the, but the real point is this, things we, we can or can't be sure on. The place of his return should not return it, should not concern us. If we needed to know, the word would make it clear. What matters is the certainty of his return, the reasons for his return, which I'll come to in, in just a moment, and our mission before he returns. Okay, so I'm coming to the, the heart of things now. Why will he return? Why will he return? If the cross and the crown have accomplished for us all the things we've been talking about for the last year, our forgiveness, our redemption, our restoration to God, if the cross and the crown have already accomplished all these things, why does Jesus need to return? And so I want us to, to look at five things that the Bible says and one thing that I say. I'm going to tag it on at the end. It's in there, but it's, it's a little extra point. Um, here's five things, that, five reasons that the Bible says Jesus must return. Okay. The first is this, and this is the first thing Jesus himself says. This really matters. Have a look at Matthew 24, verse 31. Matthew 24, 31. So the first thing Jesus says will happen when Christ returns is this. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Again, it's hard to picture exactly what that will be like. But the first reason Christ will return, the, 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 the primary reason Christ will return is to gather his church so that he can be united with his bride yes, who will be pure and spotless and mature and ready. This is the first reason for Christ's return. This is the first thing Jesus himself talks about. If the whole of history is the story of a devoted father searching for a bride suitable for his only son, if that's the whole story of the Bible, if that's what marriage is a picture of, then it's, it's completely um, fitting, isn't it, that that's what this is primarily all about. 
That's why there was a cross and a crown. That's why he saved us. That's why he dealt with our sin. He dealt with our sin to have a people for himself. And the first reason he's coming back is to gather those people. This, um, this version calls them the elect. Um, we believe that includes every Gentile and every Jew who comes to Christ to form the church of Christ. Jesus is coming back for us to gather us together. The second thing that will happen when he returns is that he will judge all the nations. So it goes on in Matthew 25, in between um, where we've just been reading and, and where we're going to get to, are lots of different parables. Parable of the fig tree, the, the um, parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents. Uh, and in those, and we'll, we'll mention this a bit later, um, Jesus is, is, is urging us and warning us over and over again to be ready for his return. Then in Matthew 25, verses 31 and onwards. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his uh, right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will also say to those who are on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. And then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And then he will answer them, I assure you whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me either. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's what Jesus said. So the second thing he will do when he returns, he will judge the nations. And Jesus tells us in plain language, he will separate the sheep and the goats, like a shepherd separates sheep and goats. Some will inherit the kingdom of eternal life. Some will be taken away from him to eternal fire or eternal punishment. And that this judgment will be on the basis of how we've lived out our faith. 
what we did for others in need. When you get into Revelation, it talks about certain rewards for things. And I just want to say two things about this, because obviously this gets to the heart of things that that matter to people. The first thing to say is that Jesus talks plainly about heaven and hell, about eternal life, eternal separation, about the kingdom, about eternal punishment. Jesus talks plainly about heaven and hell. They are real things, real places, real states, real destinies. And we mustn't try and make the Bible more palatable than it is. God does not need us to defend him. But the second thing I want to say is this should not cause us any anxiety. If we're born again, if we've been born again, if we have repented and turned our lives over to Christ, we know we have already inherited the kingdom of God. Nobody can enter the kingdom unless he's born again. You can't inherit the kingdom unless you're born again. But if you're born again, you will inherit the kingdom. So we needn't fear this judgment. Believers, it says in John 3.16, will not perish but have eternal life. That's Jesus' promise to us. In Hebrews 9, it says the Messiah will appear for a second time to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. That's the church. That's those, that's those of us who've given our lives to Christ. We do not need to be anxious. We should not, but we should be urgent about our mission. Feeding the hungry. Relieving the thirsty. Taking in strangers. Clothing the naked. Caring for the sick. Visiting captives. Setting captives free. Those things should really get us going. But we needn't be anxious about our own destinies. Okay? The third reason Jesus will return. I say it like I've got this all nailed, don't I? I, I, I haven't. I'm telling you things that, that, that I do know, but they may not be all the reasons. The third why is to raise the dead. Wow. Have a look at 1 Corinthians 15. Do you know when Jesus, um, when Jesus breathed his last and the veil was torn? You, you know, don't you, at the same time, many, um, many came out of their tombs. There was, there was a mass resurrection. I think there's a reference in possibly 500 people came out of their tombs at that time. And when Jesus returns, there will be another resurrection of the dead. Don't ask me how that will happen. Doesn't mean you have to be buried, not cremated. Nothing like that. But there will be a re-embodiment of sorts of all who've died in Christ. And in fact, all who've died. So in, um, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul picks this up. Wonderful verses. Verse 22. Um, well, let's just read from 20. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and then afterwards, at his coming, the people of Christ. And then comes the end. I'm going to get ahead of myself there. We'll stop there. 
That next bit is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4 also talks about the dead in Christ being, being resurrected at his return. Um, but John, in John 5, Jesus talks about all men being raised, some to life, some to judgment. So all who've died will somehow be raised again, and Jesus will make that judgment. The fourth reason he will return is to abolish every enemy. So let me carry on in Romans, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For he's put everything under his feet. But when it says everything is put under him, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. And when everything is subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected, be subject to him who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. The Father, the Father puts everything under the Son's feet Everything becomes submitted to the Son. Every enemy is abolished. Other verses talk about how that happens. Just for now, let's just say every enemy is abolished and, and subdued and, and comes under his feet. And then Jesus hands all of this over to the Father, submits himself afresh to the Father so that God may be all in all. This includes death. It includes the devil. It includes the devil's angels, who it says in Revelation chapter 20, verses 10, verses 14, says well, the devil and his angels will be thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus will hand the kingdom to the Father. All things will be consummated. At his first coming, Jesus inaugurated his kingdom. At his second coming, he brings everything to completion. The return of Christ will complete everything that he started. And then number five, he will return to bring a new order. Turn to um, Revelation 21. Are you all okay? Might be another ten minutes. Revelation 21, verse 1. This, um, this follows, although big warning here, Revelation is not meant to be read chronologically. But um, here in Revelation 21, is, it comes just after the description of, of judgment. And then he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea existed no longer. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with men, and he will live with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will exist no longer. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things or the old order of things has passed away. 
and then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. Then he said to me, right, because these words are faithful and true. He said, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And then some other brilliant things, which, but we'll pause there. He will bring a new order. Jesus must stay in heaven. It says in, in Acts 3, verse 21, that Jesus must stay in heaven until the time comes for the restoration of all things. That's Acts 3.21. But when Jesus returns, then is the time for everything to be restored. And it's interesting, you know, before, before his ascension and before the disciples were baptized in the Spirit, do you remember that question they asked in Acts chapter 1, verse 6? They said, Lord, ain't you at this time going to restore your kingdom to Israel? That's a question they asked before he ascended, before they were filled with the Spirit. Two chapters later in Acts 3, having seen Christ ascend, having been baptized in the Holy Spirit, they're no longer asking that question. It's much too small. The statement they're making is, Lord, is that Jesus must stay in heaven until the time comes to restore everything. This is really important, folks. He will restore everything, all power and authority to its rightful place. He'll restore heaven and earth. He, there'll be no more death, no more crying, no more tears, no more pain. The old order has passed away and a brand new order, a brand new order, it's called the age to come, a brand new order will be amongst us, upon us, the age to come. In some ways, it, it, there's a discontinuation in history. It's not that one sort of transfers into the other it's a brand new order it's a different age we'll have different bodies we'll know him in a different way it's the age to come the other thing I just want to say is this is this is I'm just adding this it doesn't say it plainly in the scriptures but I but I think it's true he will return to display his many crowns it does describe John does describe him wearing them on his head were many crowns it says in Revelation 19 but when he returns, folks, everybody will see his many crowns. He's king of everything. And it will all be made plain, all be made visible. This will be the ultimate crowning. This will be a worldwide, cosmic-wide display of his many crowns. I do just want to say this, and then um, uh, we're drawing things to a close. Jesus is not coming back to rescue his church or to rebuild a temple in Jerusalem or to reign there for a thousand years. And if you'd never even thought about those questions, just, that's fine. But, but let me just say, he, he's not coming back. He, he's not coming back to rescue his church. The Bible clearly describes a bride made ready, spotless, mature, not defeated or deflated. He has no need for a physical temple in Jerusalem because the church is his temple. The physical temple was only ever a type, a shadow, something to point towards the spiritual reality. And I believe his focus will no longer be on natural Jerusalem because he's returning to restore the whole earth. A new Jerusalem from above, as, as John describes it. A Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. This is the church, including all the Jews who will be converted. And there'll be, there'll be millions of Jews converted before Christ returns. 
We believe the millennium, the thousand years, as, as described in Revelation 20, is not a literal thousand years. Revelation is full of symbols and numbers. It's a long and a full time. I believe it's the time we're in now in which Satan is already bound because Christ defeated him on the cross, in which the gospel is already advancing towards the ends of the earth. Jesus spoke plainly and he made clear that straight after his return, there would be a judgment and then the age to come. He doesn't describe a period of, of reigning on the earth for a millennium. Bible prophecy is fulfilled at so many levels. And there are often literal, physical fulfillments which are shadows of the bigger spiritual fulfillments. And I believe as we're baptized in the Spirit, God wants to open our eyes so we don't ask the small questions anymore. We see the bigger thing. Lord, are you going to restore your kingdom to Israel? He must stay in heaven until the time comes for the restoration of all things. The, the whole concept has got bigger. You with me? Finally, nearly finally, when will he return? Well, there are mysteries about certain aspects of his return, but there are no mysteries about when he will return. We know for sure. Okay, here's the answer. Nobody knows. The Bible is clear. Yeah, absolutely. Matthew 24, have a look there. Matthew 24, verse 36. This is equally, everything's important. This is equally important for us. Matthew 24. Jesus. Who believes Jesus? Who believes Jesus would ever tell something that wasn't true? Jesus never lies. He is truth. He is grace and truth. Jesus is truth. And he says, now concerning that day, Matthew 24, verse 36, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father only. Only the Father knows. We already read in Acts, it, um, there are times and seasons that the Father is set by his own authority. We simply don't know, and we're, we're repeatedly told that the time is unknown, it will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. But we are told what will happen before he returns. And there's a list going up behind me. We must look at these in more detail but in Matthew 24, all of these things are from Matthew 24, verses 5 through to 29. He says there'll be false messiahs, but he says, don't be deceived. He says there'll be wars and rumors of wars, but he says, don't be alarmed. There'll be famines and earthquakes, but he says, these are the beginnings of the birth pains. There will be persecutions, but we know there'll be nothing compared with Christ's. There will be false prophets but their signs and wonders are counterfeit. There will be apostasy, a falling away. People's faith, some people's faith will grow cold, but he says if you endure to the end, you'll know deliverance. There will be a worldwide advance of the gospel, no buts. This gospel, he says in verse 14, this gospel must be preached in all the earth, then the end will come. So that's something that must happen before he returns. That will involve the large-scale conversion of Jews. The, Paul describes in Romans 11 the, the natural branches being regrafted back in yeah. to the olive tree. The Jews will come to Christ. Right. There will be something that Jesus calls an, an abomination of desolation. Um, maybe we'll go into that. It's something that is described in Daniel. It's a gross, hideous, blasphemous act 
that will defile the house of God. And there will be a great time of great trial or tribulation, but it will be a short time. There will be those signs in the skies. Jesus speaks about these general conditions. He doesn't give specific events or dates, but he does describe the climate of the end times. He doesn't do it to enable the disciples to to make a wall chart, you know, a timetable of all the eschatological events. We don't need to be concerned with obscure obscure fulfillments of obscure prophecies. Jesus has spoken plainly. Are we in these end times? Of course we are. Look at the list. Things will get more intense, sure. Some things will become more obvious, but the beginnings of these times, we're already in them. That's why you and I feel so acutely disturbed by some things we see happening around us. But we needn't be searching for fulfillments. Jesus has spoken plainly, and we know all we need to know. Finally, what must we do in the light of his return? It will be the most climatic event ever. It will eclipse and transcend anything and everything that's ever happened. It's something, it's, it's beyond our imagination to picture it. But in the light of its certainty, let me leave us with two things we must do. Number one, we must get ready. That is the, that is the emphasis in Jesus' teaching. Be ready. Don't be taken by surprise. Be watchful, be ready. Don't try and predict the exact time. Be ready all the time. Don't wait to get your house in order. Do it now. In 2 Peter, Peter says, in the light of these things, what kind of people should we be? And we'll talk about that later in this series. Be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Don't live a life where if you knew for certain it was next week, you'd be making a lot of changes to get ready. Live ready. Have those conversations now. Put those relationships right now. Get ready, and secondly, get busy living out your faith, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, uh, ministering to those captives, preaching the gospel in all the nations. If there's any delay in his return, Peter says it's because he doesn't want anyone to perish. Jesus is held back until the time comes for the restoration of all things, and while we're waiting... He doesn't want anyone to perish. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Jesus is going to return to finish what he started, to gather his church, to restore all things, and to herald the age to come. And we must be ready, and we must be busy, because we have a mission to be fulfilled. Amen. Amen. Why don't we just stand together in his presence? Lord, we've covered much ground this morning. But I want to pray, Holy Spirit, that all that you want us to know about the return of Jesus... Will, be, um, will settle in our spirits, Lord. Yes. 
that we will be a ready and active people with our own houses in order and our lives uh, living out this faith that we so enjoy, this faith that saved us. Lord, we will reflect all that you've done for us, feeding us, clothing us, releasing us, meeting us. Our lives will be active in mission. And the, these teachings over the next few weeks will only, um, will only stir us to be more peaceful, more active, more focused on what we are here to do while we wait for your return. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.